Namaste, everyone. As part of my book launch on my latest book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, Five Battlegrounds, I'm having conversations with thought leaders in various domains, various specialties. And today I have a very special thought leader, Vallabh Bhanshali Ji, needs no introduction to my viewers. We've had him on our show several times and he's always a big hit. Uh, Banchali Ji is one of the prominent, one of the most prominent and future thinking investors in India, uh, very plugged into the world scene, an Indian scene on investments, on economy, uh, particularly technology and including artificial intelligence. The second uh, reason I find him very interesting is uh, he's a serious meditator in Vipassana. Uh, he's a serious uh, a person in the whole pursuit of uh, the evolution of consciousness. So there is that side of him which makes him very important. This dual side of uh, being very pragmatic in business and industry and also very thoughtful and, and, and evolving his consciousness and helping others evolve their consciousness makes him a very extraordinary person. So welcome, welcome Banshali Ji. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Sab. You are very kind and generous. Um, I hope uh, I meet your expectations, uh, even to a fraction, I'll be very happy. But uh, you are such an inspiration, Dr. Saab. Very happy to be with you again. Thank you, Bhanshaliji. So, you know, my, to my viewers, uh, my book uh, is on how artificial intelligence is a disruptive force for the good or the bad. Uh, it, it works both ways. Uh, when something amplifies the human body, like a machine, you can use it, uh, you can amplify good things, you can amplify bad things. And artificial intelligence amplifying the human mind uh, can also be used in various ways. So being a disruptive force means that current equilibriums, balances, delicate balances are going to be disruptive because some people will adopt it better than others. Some will use it for one thing, some will use it for another thing. There may be new haves and have nots. So there'll be a disruption. And I, in, I've researched this for five years. Before that, this was my topic in graduate school when I was doing computer science, but that was 50 years ago. So for five years, I've researched the impact of artificial intelligence on society using technologies that are current, not futuristic science fiction, but current technologies only. And I organized the, the disruptions into five battlegrounds. Out of the five battlegrounds, I think there are two I would like to discuss with Banshali Ji because uh, these are very relevant to his, his, uh, his domain of expertise. One of them I will talk about is economy, investments, uh, India's uh, R&D in AI and other things, uh, you know, startups, uh, the whole uh, education, uh, all of that. So the, the, uh, the whole business sector and economy sector and employment sector, that is one uh, domain, one battleground that we'll talk about. And the second one will be spirituality. Uh, how does it affect spirituality in, in different ways? So uh, so on the first one, uh, Banshali Ji, uh, a perspective I have is, and I'd like your comments, that if AI is too much, it's a problem. And if it's too little, it's a problem. I mean, there's a, uh, if it's too little, then India will lag behind other people. We will not be competitive. Then this make in India will not work because our, we'll be using old methods and low tech and, and uh, our people will not get the benefit of all the services that AI can provide. 
So, that, so we lag behind as a society. That's if we are, if it's too little. If it is too much, it may create unemployment. It may suddenly create, uh, you know, uh, automation uh, where where the industry will gain, but uh, employees might not. So, what are your thoughts on where is India in terms of uh, avoiding both risks? Uh, you know, not not having too little AI and not having too much AI. How do you feel about this? Let me begin at the end, Dr. Sub. <clears throat> so, whether technology causes unemployment, um, because technology has continued to evolve from times immemorial. Um, so, it's, it's, it's a big question and technology brings a lot of good. So, technology is inevitable in its progress. Whether it brings unemployment, directly speaking, or a section of the employee or workforce, there's no doubt about it because those who are directly affected lose their jobs. And they need to reskill, and that's easier said than done. But I have also seen that technology solves a lot of problems that were not solved for a long time. Like it opens, you know, when ships advanced, they opened routes. Uh, and, you know, those routes enabled mass immigration, movement of people, and that brought new opportunities and so on. And so I could go on with so many examples that, uh, you know, when a hospital was created, uh, maybe, you know, a lot of, because there was concentrated medical facility in one place, that meant that a lot of uh, distributed medical facilities got affected, but it creates its own employment, it creates new opportunities. But indeed, there is a cycle, there is a time period in which all this can be very disruptive. So I have always looked at technology with less fear. And so therefore, you cannot fight it, you better join it. So in that sense, I think India should find ways to join it rather than fear it because it's going to happen inevitably. And we have seen that once people taste something, they want it. And given that India is an open society, uh, unlike China, and we have access to what is happening in the world, people taste uh, Netflix, people taste uh, some Google, people taste something. And, you know, fortunately, we, have, uh, we are doing well, rather, on in internet penetration. And Modiji, particularly with his Digital India, is going to make this news known to the world. Yeah, I mean, known to every Indian uh, or, you know, almost all the Indians. And therefore, we have to think that, you know, how do we come to the cutting edge of artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and the whole gamut of new technologies that are already on the horizon and advancing fast. So that's my view that um, we have to accept it. We have to find ways to adopt it. And there are good news and there is some bad news in it. And maybe, you know, as we go along, so I just wanted to make those my opening comments that uh, I want to welcome artificial intelligence because it's unstoppable. Uh, it has been, you know, developing ever since computerization started, machine learning of some kind started happening. And then database technology, you know, got developed 20 years ago. And this has now gone to the next level with, you know, I mean, and I do, we don't have to talk about the complexity of that here. So I think uh, India must wake up. I agree with you in that, that India must wake up, uh, wake up fully and find ways, whatever be the resource crunch, how to, you know, keep up with the world. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, so on the same point, 
you know, the uh, uh, haves and have-nots of industry will get shaken up because, for instance, let's say Tesla, driverless cars, electric cars, uh, don't have the same internal combustion engine that the previous technology did. So you don't need a spark plug and a carburetor and you don't need those things. Now I'm told, uh, maybe my figures are not exact, but I'm told that several million people uh, are employed. Maybe four or five million people in India are employed in the auto sector, not only making cars, but making ancillaries, exporting them. So it's a big economy. Now, now the new technology will displace all these workers because you don't need those parts. A lot of the small, medium-sized companies will go out of business. I mean, a big one like Mahindra will retool and start making electric cars, but uh, all these ancillary wallas are not uh, going to be able to come along. So they, they, this kind of disruption happens suddenly. Now it happened in the prior industrial revolutions, but you know, there was a difference. When the industrial revolution happened in England, it take uh, the, the availability of capital was not so quick. So people took a long time to automate their farms. Uh, so, you know, if you are in the middle of a career as a 35 year old farmer, you can continue 20 more years doing farming uh, and your son will get a job in a factory. Uh, you don't, you're not disrupted in the middle of your career because the adoption rate was slow. The adoption rate was driven by the availability of capital. The scaling of equipment wasn't so quick. The training to do all this was not so quick. So because things were adopted slowly, uh, there was enough time to phase out the old in a gradual, graceful way. Now things are happening so fast. I mean, when you have the Uberization, suddenly all these New York City taxi drivers are out of work because there is this Uberization. It did not happen slowly. So in this manner, uh, the speed of adoption and the availability of capital and the quick scaling is so different now that people in mid-career are disrupted, dis, uh, dis, uh, suddenly out of work. Industries are shutting down. Some of the some of the uh, ancillary makers are going to be out of business. So how do you feel that this particular technological disruption has different challenges than the previous ones? So we cannot just, uh, I read a lot of reports where they say, you know, there's always been disruption, a lot of these reports. Uh, and so this is another one. And like before we landed on both feet, everybody was happy, we'll be fine again. But I feel that this time it's a little different. What do you think of that? Leaning on spirituality, uh, the first major step on the spiritual path is being alert. If you are not alert, in every moment you have to be alert. If you don't get that, you lose out big time. So even what you have gained, you will lose. So it's not a question of, you know, what we do not have and we need to acquire, but even what we have, we may lose. But if we are alert, we see what capital we have and what capital we don't have. And that's the only way that a clever businessman is going to do business. So sometimes you, you know, it is after all, at the end of the day, you keep analyzing things, you'll come to barter of some kind. So when I look at India, compared to some of the revolutions that, you know, pushed India back, of course, because, you know, we got, uh, you know, our, we were controlled, we were ruled over by, you know, foreigners for hundreds of years, and then British in particular were very exploitative. So I'm not going into that. But over the last 20, 30 years, <clears throat> some things have changed. I think since the liberalization of 1991, the confidence of Indians to try and take on the challenges 
is of a different order. This shall this confidence is not where it ought to be, but I am happy to note that it is growing. Number one, number two, in this world, market is as important as sometimes the products, and therefore eventually India is a large market. We are one sixth of the world, uh, or you know, I mean, yeah, one sixth at least of the world, and that means uh, we have a real chance. Uh, people want to come to us. We are also growing, even if we are growing at five, six, seven percent, we are growing more rapidly than most countries in the world and demographics are on with us, on our side. So the question to me, the challenge to me is that all what you said is right, but it need not be static. Can we queer the pitch? Can we do something different out of the box? And that is possible. So if you look at China and be inspired by it, China recognized that, you know, what do they have? They had poverty, but they said we have cheap labor. We can change the rules to make it very convenient for someone who wants to do whatever they want to do. And can we appropriate, steal, ask for it in an open manner? China likes to believe that we asked and people gave. People wanted all the facilities. So we, they gave what we wanted. So they can't complain about it. So whatever. So I think the China has shown a great path as to countries with population, countries with ancient civilization, countries with demographics, they still have an advantage because they have the market. And we are halfway. We have not evolved to where China is or US is. But we are halfway in terms of adoption of digital technology in engineering colleges. And the good thing about opening up is that uh, I'll give you a concrete example. I won't mention names of companies. But over the last five, six years, Digitalization and automation became very big, artificial intelligence and so on. And which meant that Indian software companies, which employ, you know, some of them are so large, they employ hundreds of thousands of engineers. And they were used to doing time and material business, which means deploying cheap labor. It was a labor arbitrage. It became more and more sophisticated, but it still was labor arbitrage. And that, that little sliver at the top, which was you know, needed to do automation, large number of people in the middle, they were drawing high salaries, but they were not equipped to do this. So the companies had a real problem that they would lose their profitability very fast and they would become irrelevant. So the one side, there was a huge opportunity to get these businesses. And second side, they were carrying a lot of dead wood. I think India is in that sense in the middle path. If we can adopt the learning tools that are open up, that have opened up, you know, the Coursera, etc. is old news. We have moved way beyond Coursera and all. So I think if we can adopt as China did, that, you know, sending its students abroad, bringing those professors to China, opening English classes, and, you know, on a mass scale, bring the population capability up, India still has a chance. So we, but I agree with you that unless I may be an optimist, you are on a deliberate uh, manner, you're coming from a certain stand to basically instigate, not that India should lose out, but in your warning, you will lose out unless you wake up. And I'm only following that streak, maybe a little bit based on some of my experiences that I'm seeing pockets who are alert, who are done, who are doing things and who have done things. So I saw some companies do a brilliant job that instead of losing 30% of their people, 
they managed to lose 5-10 and bring up the rest. Second thing I want to share, a good example. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't think we have a basic disagreement, but I'm just presenting some data from my experience. Um, I sponsored some of the schools for a robotics competition conducted by IIT. IIT was doing robotics for smaller engineering colleges, remote engineering colleges, and saying that these kids will never get a chance to you know, get IIT education and far less robotics. So one good Indian who returned to India to serve motherland is constantly thinking of new ideas and it was very successful. But they said, the kids are very bright. Why not we go to schools? So I sponsored some of the schools. The response and the capability of the kids, uh, Dr. Malhotra, was fantastic. Which means if you catch them young, you don't have to wait for you know, them to become engineers, etc. There are kids in schools who are trying to learn Python, which is the latest computer language, as you know, on their own. They are asking such cutting-edge questions. They're working extremely hard. So the students are ready for very advanced education. Our schools are still probably you know, 50 years or 100 years you know, behind. So there are these opportunities. And a lot of these schools were from you know, small and rural areas. May not be rank rural area, but they were B town, C town, D town of India. So I think over the last 30 years, since I have been a part of this whole journey, and I can say that I at least played a bit role in the whole economic revolution in India by you know, supporting companies, investing, etc., we again have a chance. And I will want to talk about one other initiative, uh, I think, as we go along. Wonderful. This is excellent. Uh, so since you raised China, I'll, I'll take that up also. I, I do a lot of interactions with Chinese people. I've known I visited China a long time ago, since a long time uh, as part of my business. And I keep in touch with some of the people. So what I heard is they also started with wage arbitrage in manufacturing. So they could go to the world and say, look, my wages per hour are a fraction. So just like India did for uh, so services and software. So, but there was one big difference. They made easy money by uh, the spread between what they were paying and what they were able to charge the American companies. But they took a large part up to between 25 and 50% of the profits they made from labor, labor arbitrage. They reinvested it in futuristic technologies building products. So they, they were not content just making quick money on wage arbitrage. They wanted to keep, give some of it to the shareholders, but they wanted to also invest in things that will have value 10 years from now. So they got into AI, they got into nanotechnology, they became the leaders in solar power, a lot of these. They made some big bets. These are very gutsy, courageous bets. And they're not small scale bets, they are like billion dollars type bets. And they made those bets quite wisely. Now, maybe they begged, borrowed, sold technology. That's a, that is also true. But they, they, their eyes were on, they, they set their sights high on big uh, outcomes. By 2025, they want to match United States in AI, things like that. Now, in India, we used wage arbitrage for easy money. And a lot of people made a lot of money. Some middle class people moved up. But, you know, we were software leader of the world. How come we are now 10 years behind China in AI, which is a software thing? We, we did not take the money when the money was big and easy. 
we did not take it and say, you know, let's fit, figure out what is going on in the future and invest in that. Now, I'll tell you, the Indians had an advantage over the Chinese in figuring out the future because Indian brains running, running the technology of banks in America and New York banks run by Indians in the back office, uh, medical research, uh, you, you name it, there is hardly a sector in the United States where the cutting edge companies don't have a predominance of Indians as the brains running the technology. So if the Tatas of the world and Infosys, and, and I'm not picking on anybody, but if they wanted to understand what is the future that the client is thinking, then you know India could have developed the, uh, the Watson, IBM Watson, which is the AI based. So uh, things of that kind, which uh, the, their clients were developing, they saw that IBM is developing and we are giving them the programmers to do it. So we never, is it that our ambition wasn't big enough compared to China? Is it that it required collective thinking on, in a planned economy and we are too, not planned enough because we are a free economy and China could do it? Is that the factor? Or is it that we are sort of short term thinking? What do you think? I mean, I'm giving three factors. One is, uh, one is uh, big ambition that the Chinese have. Second, a very uh, you know end-to-end -end planned economy long term, and third, the idea of uh, you know sacrifice the short-term profit and reinvest in the future. Do you feel that these are the reasons or something else that took uh, the world leader in software now becoming behind in air? I think all the three factors are relevant. That uh, we don't need probably a planned economy. But we need a planned national ambition. Hmm. You can, you know, I mean, China, as a lot of your viewers may be aware of this classic written by an American intelligence officer, Michael Pillsbury, called 100 Year Marathon, that how China, just as it became independent, wrote all those goals that by, you know, 2025, or say they were more conservative, that at least in 100 years time, we will become the most powerful country in the world. And they, they now claim that they already become, America does not even know what we have and what they don't have. So I think that ambition. So another example of that ambition was, uh, say, South Korea. And so South Korea recognized, you know, it was a tiger country and so on. But they recognized that they were doing labor arbitrage, you know. So, you know, it started with Japan and then went to Korea and then and so on. And the Malaysia, Thailand, et cetera, et cetera, all followed. Uh, but uh, China, Korea decided that, you know, we need to be in ICT. We need to be in, you know, uh, semiconductors. We need to be in, you know, cutting edge technology. And today, you know, they make telephones. They are in semiconductors. They are in AI. And they have, you know, so they do not have end-to-end -end planned economy. But they had national ambition. And you could, you know, you get private companies to do that. Nothing like that has happened in India. Yes. In a very small manner, something like that happened in the 90s, early 90s. As India opened up, we had Nescom. And we had some of the software company leaders who talked collectively. And the government listened, of Narsimha Rao particularly. He, he was a wise man. He understood he had national ambition. That's how he could open up the economy. So, you know, we needed something like that. So I would say we don't necessarily need you know, central planning, we can do it with private sector and maybe with lot, uh, many advantage in the long term. Uh, so that's one. Two, I think 
but to have that collective national ambition we need less divisive politics our politics is extremely divisive i think that's a major major problem that something which is straightforward is being will be opposed and that happens with you know parties on either side that if you are in the opposition you oppose so there is no national ambition i think what is holding back india today's india i think is divisive politics more than anything else so every reform we want to resist so i mean if i am in the opposition i'll reform the very you know reform that i was talking about for many years right so it is most unfortunate within this only hope i see is uh, you know groups of people whether they be ngos or some companies uh, the startup culture in india so i think some of them are raising hope that we can move extremely fast so you know i mean the example that comes to my mind is uh, that uh, Uh, from the story of ramayan and mahabharata that there is a section of people or some rishis who are harassed by rakshasas who have mayavi capability who have artificial intelligence who have you know tools which they don't understand but you can go and get help you get a rama you get a bhimsen to come and you know solve the problem so but you need that piety you need that humility you need that alertness that this problem needs fixing and if i look around there may be solutions so look at it reliance industries because of this demand capability enterprise etc has written the history of capital markets raising 20 billion dollars from the most sophisticated investor in a matter of few weeks and they had people queuing up so if you queue up things properly you will have the whole world queue up i need that you know i mean It's just one company. We need twenty reliances, and some of the gap that you are seeing today maybe will shrink because then our demand, our data, is going to become extremely valuable. So till then, I will add one, you know, factor to yours in saying the central planning needs to be changed to national ambition. Very good. No, I think that's a that's a good idea. That's a that's certainly the case. Uh, the the uh, you mentioned NASCOM. Uh, I must mention that uh, the late uh, uh, Arun Kumar, a very dear friend of mine, who's no more, he was the president of NASCOM way back, one of the early presidents of NASCOM. So I know about NASCOM. I was in the tech business myself at that time, and NASCOM had a great ambition, played a long, played an important role in the rise of India's technology. Somehow, later on. It became easy money to keep milking this cash cow of uh, labor arbitrage, and and India did not take that jump like China, saying, "Okay, this is easy money, you know, fa factories with cheap labor, but we want to get ahead ahead of the Americans. How do we do that?" Indians are sitting in all the banks, all the hospitals, all the engineering companies in aerospace everywhere, and looking at what is the future planning. They are sitting in the boardrooms as a as a technical advisors. but they are not saying hey listen we'll go back and do it ourselves they are happy to be subservient supply labor uh, and so on but so we both agree on that 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 was a, a fundamental issue now a question that uh, that uh, 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 comes to mind is india's technological implementation so many mobile phones so many whatsapp so many google so many internet users all of that is based on foreign technology so while we are scaling up we are scaling up as consumers not as producers 
in the the engineering r and d is done somewhere else manufacturing we import that pay somebody royalty because we're very honest we're not stealing it we pay we do this and we do the manufacturing so when reliance says that it's the largest in something it's the largest in terms of implementing based on foreign technology but right next to uh, you know nearby is tcs with the world one of the most powerful companies in terms of brain power but tcs never took that brain power or any of the other people to uh, turn it into indian owned intellectual property we are supplying the labor for americans to get the intellectual property it's like a, a bricklayer from a poor village in bihar comes to delhi and he makes a house for a rich man a rich mansion for a, a, a person but he does not own equity in even one brick he's just supplied the labor after installing thousands of bricks he goes looking for another job and another job at the end of which he doesn't own any equity so indian programmers are like the bricklayers micro they don't even own one line of code that they've written for microsoft and they've written tens of millions of lines of code so this is something of a shame where where in a sense i feel that the were the tech brains have been used the companies that use these people are like the people who bring large amount of labor from bihar and they outsource it to a construction job and they make money out of it as an arbitrage but the while the laborer is doing better than his fellow laborers in bihar he's be, he's better off than the uh, people in his village but he's always below the glass ceiling the indian tech worker has to be lower paid than the world market for this model to work uh, because if the if the indian tech worker were to rise up to the level of uh, the the world market then this whole thing would collapse so the the business incentive the commercial incentive has been to keep wages to a certain level so that this gap this spread is there and and uh, not let the indian people or not encourage them to become their own entrepreneurs so we did not have like stanford and mit are incubating hundreds of companies i mean we have these iits we could have been incubating huge number of companies it started in a small way now but it is not the same scale the aspiration of an indian who uh, finishes a college is different than the one from stanford who he's hardly finished his college and he's already dreamt up three or four uh, ventures and he's got some patents going and he's talking to vcs whereas the indian is looking for okay where do i get my job it's sort of like a, we are a service job oriented mindset we've created and i wonder if that's something the british brought because traditional indians were very entrepreneur but the british brought this service this civil service civil service kind of mentality that sarkar ko you know you you work for the sarkar they look after you uh, and so i wonder if that's the case but then china a communist country where the communist uh, people are known for being bureaucrats and everybody serving a communist system they've turned it into entrepreneurship a communist country creating jack ma and hundreds of jack ma type people is quite an accomplishment so what is there about indian culture uh, that has made us more like consumers of technology rather than producers and followers and sort of very happy uh, staying in our place our place has been designated so i'm this worker i'll stay in that place uh, compared to say china where they become gone from consumers to producers and they've created jack ma's like crazy lots of jack ma's and in fact i i i've recently started getting to know some of them what do you think is the difference in that considering that traditionally we were the entrepreneurs china was also enterprising 
and despite the cultural devolution, what they've been able to do in the last 40 years is unprecedented in the history of mankind. And there's so much to learn. If I look at India, I simply see this, that did independence. So we had at the turn of you know, our history, when we got independence, it was a chance to empower ourselves. When we wrote in our constitution, we the people of India, it wasn't we the people of India, we the politicians and the people sitting in Delhi in India, they became the destiny writers of our country. They continue to think that they are the only ones. So this whole question of you know, empowering the man at large happened you know, two times most brilliantly. One was Mr. Narsimhar Rao and second was in Mr. Vajpayee's era. I think in the last few years, this has started again. But the mindset, and this shows up in so many places, the kind of, you know, the ease of doing business. You know, I mean, we, we are ranking, you know, we have come up large way in the last few years that you, we are probably amongst the top 50 now. We were some 150 or 180, 90. But if we are to be the largest, you know, one of the three or four largest economies of the world, it's a shame if I'm at 50 because that rank, is not a function of my, my uh, you know, productivity. It's a function of just of my size and you know, my very poor per capita income. So it shows up in one very significant place, uh, Rajiv Ji, in our currency. Today we have more than $600 billion of foreign exchange reserves. My currency continues to depreciate as it has been for last 30 years when I had only 10, 15 million one or two billion dollars of, we didn't even have one billion dollar of reserve. So, you know, I mean, I continue to think in a very defensive manner. Yeah. So if I, people at the top, if you are insecure, you cannot empower anybody. And your insecurity shows in your policies, in your currency management, in your language, in the treaties that you do. And that insecurity is a divisive politics that no politician feels, oh, this is good for my country. I'm going to win the election. It doesn't matter. I don't win the election. So Mr. Narsimhar out took those risks. Vajpayee took that risk. Both lost elections. So the question comes that uh, is that our destiny that when we get really fantastic people who love to empower the other guy. I have had an experience. I went to meet a senior bureaucrat. I'm a very senior and not being presumptuous, but very respected businessman. I had a suggestion to make to the government. So I got an appointment with great difficulty with the relevant bureaucrat. He would not offer me a seat. Very reluctantly, you know, he looked at me up and down, you know, who are you who have come? So I do not say that our, all of our bureaucrats are like, some of them are fantastic people. I mean, Amitam Kant and so many, Anil Swarup, and some of them are the finest people. But we also have people like that who are, you know, it's very, very high position. So I, I wonder how they look at uh, an average Indian. So I think this has to change big time. Fortunately, technology is a great leveler. They are not able to stop. Just as in the US also, we know that Silicon Valley, if it was probably to happen in the East, it would not have happened as easily. It was so far away from power center. In India, it matters a lot. So I think technology is a real hope. And I must tell you this story. I don't know if you had a chance to interview somebody or talk about it, but I think uh, you should. Is a group called iSpirit. 
you heard about i spirit no please introduce me i spirit i spirit is spelled without the second i i s p i r t i'll follow up with that so you know nandan nilekani you know he got out of infosys and then became the minister and then you know led that aadhar revolution but that aadhar something else was also happening around that time he was able to get one or two top coders top programmers architects etc to move over to india so that here is an opportunity to do something game changing so obviously this whole aadhar is one of the major revolutions where india is on the top and no country in the world has solved such a large problem authentication identification etc at such a low cost in such a short period of time related to that he was able to you know entice and then you know one led to the one pipe piper and the second pipe piper a group of people today works in india which is saying that technology is beyond all the rules all the red tape and they have created a way in which they want to work with the government recognizing that there are so many good people in the government government wants to do it maybe they do not know so looking at all their constraints in a positive manner working with everybody they have at least put india on the cutting edge of payment technology payment technology in the commercial world in a day to day life is one of the most significant aspects they also recognize what you said that you know i mean all of our technology forget technology the way you and i are talking we will be using we don't use an indian platform so a lot of our basic things like search or maps or youtube etc they're all controlled twitter they're all controlled by foreign agencies and they are all wonderful agencies they seem to be doing good work but any time they want to do something mischievous or they are persuaded by their regional or political interest we would be able to do nothing and it may be legitimate for them to do so so i think they said we need to build all of this so they built a health stack they have built now something called an account aggregator and that is one of the biggest breakthroughs if they succeed and i do hope and pray that they succeed in reversing the mega trillions that the us corporations are sitting on which is giving a service to a consumer but using that data for their own self that data is not available to the consumer who is generating the data making it extremely valuable for the service provider the poor man does not have access to his own data they have created an architecture to reverse it which means all the data that you generate they are beginning with a few spaces for example your banking history your tax payment history your gst etc which is generating very very rich data and they say okay consumer we will aggregate all your data and we will give you the access anybody wants to you want to give access to your data only to someone who is giving you a service the way you want at your terms this is going to be a big revolution so area after area they are architecting solutions that how india can at least reduce this gap that has come right in 1990 india and china were on par in just 30 years india is probably in different segments 5 to 30 years behind china yes so this is the kind of but human ingenuity can fill any gap yes so you know this beautiful you know you will see it in the forthcoming movie on bharat 
you know, where we talk about Dharmarath. There's this beautiful expression, uh, beautiful scene in Ramayana that uh, Ram is without a Rath <laughs> and Ravan has got this fantastic Rath. So I won't, you know, reveal the suspense. And someone says, how will this happen? And Valmiki talks about that, you know, what Rath you have to be in. So I think if we become alert, we talk about, you know, this national ambition. I still think that this gap, which is extremely depressing, frightening, can be reduced. I am not completely hopeless that despite this, you talked about the British had the ICS, the IS administrative service. We adopted it. I don't blame them. They needed it. They were ruling over us. They needed all of that. Why have we adopted and continue to adopt it? So this mass distribution of empowerment, that will be the greatest day when our prime minister for at least 10, 15 years believe that all power must go to the uh, common man. At least 20% of Indians are capable of you know, doing 100 times more than what they are doing today. We need that. I do not know how it will come. Maybe you and I have to meditate more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so uh, one, of the, one of the five battlegrounds is about the mind, about the consumer giving data and the people who are giving free services are taking this data and making trillion dollar market cap companies. Uh, I call it as machines are getting smarter, people are getting dumber, more dependent. So we're dependent on Google search to tell us what the truth is. Siri will tell us what we need to know. If I don't have, know anything, I can go and look up Wikipedia. What we, there are several problems with it. First of all, the mind atrophies. If you don't learn, if you don't learn because this machine will always tell me, then the attitude is, why do I need to learn? What's the point of learning? I just learned to pass example. I don't really need it for my life because this machine will tell me. Secondly, the assumption that this machine is objective is not true. Whether it is Google, whether it is Facebook, whether it is Twitter or anybody else, these, this knowledge is controlled. There is a hierarchy of AI. AI is not neutral. There is also a whole field called bias in AI that is now being studied, very seriously studied. So AI has bias. AI, AI is not objective. You, you put in some premises. You put in what, what constitutes success. So for instance, when you're training a driverless car, uh, you have to put in there that uh, accident is failure, not having an accident is success so that the machine can then learn by trial and error how to avoid accidents. If you, are, uh, if you say that the criteria for success is also speed, if you go faster, it's better than if you go slower. So if you can avoid accidents and get there faster, it's, it's better. So the criteria of success, the rules of the game, what you are trying to optimize has to be put into the AI. So in, in a social situation, you have to feed the AI with what your values are. What is your social values? So China is controlling a large number of population based on its values of nationalism, its values. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, all these companies are controlling all over the world based on their criteria of what is good, what is bad. So they can block you because they didn't like your post. They didn't like it because according to them, it was not good. But according to, some, according to you, it was good. So India, in a sense, is a digital colony. That's the term I use in this book. Because we do not have our own, our own adjudication, 
we do not say there is no court in Delhi, there is no uh, tribunal, there is no uh, adjudication place where I as a consumer can go and say, Facebook is biased against me and this is unfair. They are applying some American standard. They are applying a standard based on what is best for their commercial interest. And whether they are supporting this party or that party, this product or that product, they're trying to maneuver me in a certain direction based on their algorithm, but their algorithm is not transparent. Firstly, it's not transparent. Secondly, I have no ability to contest. So, so you see, uh, the Facebooks of the world, and I'm not picking on Zuckerberg per se, it's, this is true for all social media, they are using data for a, to optimize their self-interest. They are very clear about it. And that is why they're able to produce such amazing results for advertisers and suck in the whole advertising industry. And it's not just selling shoes and holidays and Netflix movies. It's also convincing people how to vote, convincing people ideologically, convince, convincing them whether they should be joining this particular uh, group that may be a troublemaker group. So the use of AI in hacking the mind, this is one of my five battlegrounds that you touched on. And so this is where we are losing power and I call it the battle for agency. The agency, freedom, my ability to think for myself is being compromised because I go on autopilot. I let them make decisions for me. I trust them. The more they make good decisions and they, they reward me, the more I trust them. And, and as I trust them, my guard comes down and they're taking more and more data out of me. So this, this kind of, uh, uh, over the past 10, 15 years, trillion dollar companies came out of nowhere based on giving free services and sucking in your data, figuring you out better than you have figured out yourself, better than your friends know you, these systems know you. So this is actually a national security threat, according to me. And, and the, the, the expectation I would have of people like Reliance and Tata's is to compete against this on our own terms, rather than becoming a consumer, rather than inviting their platform and saying, come on, invest in me and I'll market you. What should have happened is I would have, I would have liked Mukesh Ambani to say, I'm going to create my Facebook and my Google because he has the money. Very few people can do it. And, and that would have been a better outcome than saying, okay, I, they let them invest in me in a sense, in a sense they are infiltrating and getting into our country even more. So I have a, I have a different opinion on whether, uh, inve whether inviting these foreign investors is a wise thing. Uh, short term it is wise, we get some cash. Uh, long term, we become more dependent on them. Leapfrog ahead of the Chinese and the American digital economy, create our own, control our own data, our own destiny, uh, and, and keep our agency. So that's, how do you feel about that? The, the Swadeshi, the Swaraj of digital, uh, digital Swaraj we need. But as I said, that this national ambition is a must. National ambition requires not only ambition at Delhi level, but ambition even amongst businessmen. As you said, could Mukesh Bhai, you know, create the next Facebook? I must also point to one other thing. That today, if I were to say that my rupee is not, you know, some around 73, 75 rupees to a dollar, and it is 55 rupees to a dollar or 50 rupees to a dollar, suddenly my purchasing power, my wealth, etc. changes dramatically. China understood this extremely well. We somehow not understood some of these factors of this kind, that what is the power of my aggregate data? And if this data can be aggregated in a certain manner, how can I, you know, just think of it that, oh, government should control it, or two businessmen should control, or five businessmen should control, or there are more intelligent structures. 
So you need a government. You need lots of powerful people in the government, you know, bureaucrats, ministers, etc., to engage with problems of our country, to create the most vital thing necessary for this after the national ambition. That comes first. Second comes resources. We don't have very deep-pocketed country companies. Mukesh Bhai, his company was in serious debt until two years ago. He said, "I'm going to become debt-free," and it's only someone like him who could create, you know, collect twenty billion dollars and you know just change the game completely. So I need those financial surplus. Today, the kind of money that the VCs in US, etc., can make available. So even Indian startups. 90% of the money that the indian startups get comes from abroad so even while the startup culture is happening their destiny is controlled by the foreigners so we need to create these surpluses so you need a taxation policy you need ease of doing business so you know i mean we need a slogan like we have jai jawan jai kisan given by lal bahadur shastri the great man long time back we have to say for at least next 10 15 years jai jawan jai kisan and businessman bhagwan <laughs> unless you create that kind of enterprise that only these people can be game changers create that sense of you know honesty and patriotism in them and you create the businessman bhagwan for 15 20 years do give them a chance we 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 had the brains to rule the i mean to be as successful and never you know do hegemony over anybody the same thing can happen today also so i feel very hopeful because i built so many of these stories you know i've been a party to try can't say who am i to build anything but been i've been a party to those i've been a catalyst of some kind so there are so many low hanging fruits uh, rajiv ji uh, that uh, you need some aligning of ducks some and uh, lot can happen i'm not saying that we will come on par with china but maybe the 30 years can be reduced to 5 7 years in many many areas so you know you mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, the demographic dividend now uh, do you feel large population is a dividend or also a liability and here's my point suppose india did not have 1.3 billion people but suppose it had half as many and suppose the poorer people i'm not wishing them ill but suppose that the lower demographic were not there and we had a smaller population and with automation you can do a lot of work with less labor intensive uh, ways this would be less this would be better for the environment not so damaging to the climate and pollution and all that now do you feel that uh, the huge population if you were to scale, rank them by productivity uh, how much are they how much do they need as consumers and how much are they producers you will find at some point in time there are people who are consuming a lot they need to they need schools they need hospitals they need education they need uh, you know all all the facilities but they are not necessarily producers so why why the government is has to look after them but it is a responsibility and it's a liability so do you feel that the demographic dividend uh, is a is a kind of a mixed blessing because while uh, while the people are available as consumers the point is that if they are not gainfully employed if they are not gainfully employed then they are also a liability they are also stomach to fill it's not just hands to work but also stomach to feed so is population an asset or do you think it's a liability so demographic dividend is loosely used it was used for few countries which really 
you know had probably the right kind of uh, you know uh, what we call the land mass ratio and they mm-hmm. were the country was educating its people which means making them you know giving them a chance to be more productive and also creating an environment in which you know enterprise could flourish and jobs could be created and that's when that dem- classic demographic dividend uh, expression was used and was very relevant in india we have had you know two steps forward and one step back and therefore what could have been demographic dividend by now you know has not yet been seen we also know that there is there will be a segment of population which needs support and because of this adverse dependency on agriculture that you know at least 50% of population in one way or the other it dependent on only 15% of gdp so is extremely low productivity i mean the statistics can be just given in you know that one little uh, you know citation that 50% at least 50% of population directly depend on an agriculture the gdp share is only 15% and falling if that grows at only 2% 3% and the total gdp is growing at you know at least 5 6 so that is always constantly falling so we have not the divisive politics you know will raise some emotional issues some irrelevant or less relevant issues and take all the governmental space the intellectual space public debate space and leave some of these basic problems unattended for decades i think modi ji has done extremely well taking the most bold steps of building confidence of the people number one and tackling labor reforms land reforms agricultural reform education policy i think some of the most brilliant suggestions have been you know put into educational policy so there is so much enormous amount of work to be done rajiv ji i see i become less despondent only because firstly i am an interventionist i am trying to do what i can secondly i am not alone the number of people that i meet in different directions i am in several areas of intervention from agriculture to water conservation to education uh, in in covid we got into health and understanding the health infrastructure etc so i meet lots and lots of people but this alignment of duck that someone at the top recognizes that oh we are not the only wise guys let's identify all the wise guys empower them respect them and so on i think it is such low hanging fruit that lot can be done and the macro thinking that you know we need not be servile we have all the strengths of the world we cannot create a company we cannot create a country by design that okay this should be this ratio that ratio etc so it will be whatever it is but once you create confidence your disadvantages started becoming you know they they get mitigated and some of them convert into advantages also so how you see things is so important this is a classic hanuman story you know I mean, until you know he is pointed out hanuman can remain you know idle or you know whatever so i think that uh, the leadership and attitude can change a lot we need 20 years to come up close to where china is and we need all these things to happen a bureaucracy which does not look at india as something to be ruled over 
which really empowers people, politics which is less divisive. Why can't we have consensus about at least 20 important issues of the world, of the country? You fight about everything else, about education, about agriculture, about employment and so on. You create a consensus, national consensus. I have seen some hope on most of those battlegrounds. One battleground is what is called deep ICT. So while you have the basic coding, this, that, etc., the core semiconductor, core technology, core telecom, uh, core computing, or in a social sector, you talked about, you know, the, the social, uh, you know, social media, etc. I think those are large gaps. So you can do a lot if we start thinking of empowering our people. This has been an amazing discussion with Banchali ji on the stool sharir. Stool sharir is physical body. So normally we talk about stool sharir of a person, but I, I'm talking about in this book, the stool sharir of a nation. So we've talked about the geography, whether it's secure, uh, whether the economy is good, uh, industry, infrastructure, uh, the human resource, all of that is the physical stool sharir level we've talked about. Uh, and and then we'll talk about the sukshma sharir, which is the inner being. Uh, what does artificial intelligence do for the disruption of the inner being? And what, is there a battleground there? AI with artificial, uh, you know, many virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial pleasures, artificial gratification. Elon Musk is uh, now there's goggles, there's variables. You can imagine that you are on a holiday somewhere, you're flying here, there, all your fantasies you can imagine. You, you're sitting with your favorite uh, celebrity having dinner in an augmented reality. All of that you can do. And that's the future of entertainment, it's the future of so many things. Elon Musk and the US uh, military are, are creating implants. So in your brain, they'll be able to copy the neuron, the, the burst of neurons, the pattern of neurons, when you have a certain feeling like joy, ecstasy, when you are sad. So they'll be able to correlate what kind of burst of neurons corresponds to what kind of feeling. And they can play back the, they can play back the memory of a certain kind of neuron and create that feeling again. So it, when, they, when they want to remove a PTSD person from depression and pain and give him a happy memory, they can artificially do that. Uh, when they want to take somebody who's bipolar and shift him from a sad state to a, a, a normal, a better, happier state, they can do that. So this artificial uh, manipulation using both things inside your brain and things outside from social media, uh, what kind of post you like, uh, what, you know, uh, augmented reality. So AI is putting together a kind of an artificial world for the individual, which is very individualized which is going to gratify this person. And you'll be able to buy maybe $10 a month subscription uh, from uh, Google or some of these guys, and uh, they'll give you all kinds of things to be happy, uh, cater to your hobbies, keep, uh, give you the fantasies you need. Uh, so people live in more of an escapist bubble. Now, the spiritual issue I have is that meditation that you and I do wants us to go inside rather than external. We want to go within and find the Anand. Satchit Anand is not some kind of an algorithm that will create for us. Satchit Anand is inside. And this idea that uh, uh, the more I'm unified, the yoga is unity, unified. 
So the more myself is unified inside, the happier I'll be, is completely overruled by a technology which says there is no unified Rajiv. There is Rajiv, the holiday guy. There is Rajiv, the video guy. There is Rajiv, the guy who likes to eat chocolates. There's Rajiv who want to go do this. So each of those, there'll be apps. There'll be different vendors, different suppliers who can supply me with this pleasure, that pleasure, that gratification. So Rajiv is being torn apart, fragmented into many, many little Rajivs that are being satisfied by various places. And what happens to the unity? What happens to the adhyatmic? What happens to the meditation is gone. So I see the extreme success of AI mechanized pleasures and mechanized mind management to be very antithetical to spirituality. And I don't see the spiritual gurus talking about it. Uh, in fact, one or two of them I won't name. When I've raised this issue, they're not at all informed about it. And, and uh, in fact, they're saying, oh, no, no, it's all good. Whatever happens, it's all Maya. Who cares like that? But I, I really am concerned. One of my battlegrounds is called the battle for self. The battle for self with a capital S. That higher self, a battle for it uh, between the, the uh, tradition of spirituality, consciousness through meditation versus the AI gratification. So this is our, this is a very important, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book because I'm really troubled by it. How would you, how do you feel about this? So, you know, it is, I really don't have an answer to this that, uh, you know, what will succeed to what extent. So if you, you know, do a linear projection that, oh, this is so powerful and there are so many people who will get sucked in for sure. And then if this multiplies, we will reach some world like that. Fortunately, I have seen in the last 60, 70 years, particularly, that the, the new guy upstages the old guy in a very unpredictable manner. Say, for example, in a world which was very materialistic. In 1969, when Goenkaji started the you know, serious meditation revolution in the world, there were Mahesh Yogi and Rajneesh, uh, Mahesh Yogi and people like them started with Ramakrishna Paramhansa and Vivekanandji and all of that. So we could see that for 100, 200 years, this whole meditation revolution coming to an average man was on slow boil. And maybe it has come to a big boil. This was unpredictable. So maybe this was building up this journey within. I mean, there is not a single day when somebody or the other approaches me that, you know, can you help me get a seat for Vipassana around the world? Even in America, in England and the other centers, people say, oh, there is a trustee. If you know somebody, can you know, help? It doesn't help much. But sometimes, you know, you are on a waiting list or, you know, but at least there is so much demand for it. So you can't explain that how the universe is working in some manner. Second thing I'm seeing, I'm sure that you heard about this movie called Social Dilemma. Yes, yes, of course. So this is called, you know, in negotiation and in, uh, in, uh, strategy, you call it expose. So this other guy is however smart. Once he gets exposed, somehow that power dissipates. There's at least a question and doubt in the average man's mind. Oh, there's something mischievous going on. And that is enough that the next time the turn comes, this guy may turn off. So you find that IBM thought that, oh, they were the ultimate. 
they didn't prove to be ultimate microsoft didn't prove to be ultimate so none of them has proven to be ultimate for too long and actually their empire is running for shorter and shorter periods so we are seeing this google facebook kind of world and we we are getting too scared so we do not i do not want to make a linear projection number 1 number 2 sometimes what i'm seeing the last 20 30 years is this uh, um should i say urge for experience because you know people are less insecure so they want to experience life is not possessions as much as experiences once you finish experiencing something you say oh i just hollow after all it's a sensation it doesn't last and that's how maybe people are coming more and more to meditation you know having experienced a lot of things but they say no no we want to see something which is you know beyond the material experience the third speculative aspect of this is that uh, the fundamental is that we have created our entity sankhar pachaya vinyan pachaya nama roop taking buddha's explanation of the whole reality that somebody is my friend until i decide he is my friend the day i say he is not my friend so these are the myths that we live by so lot of these assumptions that you know the social media and the manipulative companies are thinking that oh we will be able to create these assumptions in mind and hold them maybe at some point of time you start reversing those assumptions so hollywood has produced a large number of movies you know sci-fi brilliant sci-fi movie 30 40 50 years back and they continue to make but this may not prove true for large populations segment of population could be highly exploited by them could be totally hacked by them they could lead to you know billions of dollars in revenue and trillions of market cap but whether it will affect large segments of population maybe at the marginal level maybe there are counter forces that will resist and this is only going by economic and this is speculative but i'm very inspired that ibm thought they were god they were not god microsoft thought they were god they were not god and every 5 10 years there is a new challenge that changes everything point i will make i fully agree with you on all this but the point i make is that the market is betting on these very companies future with huge market caps with huge pe ratios on the assumption that they are going to be successful in capturing more and more mind share into this artificial pleasure now there used to be in the last 20 years there was a been a huge opioid epidemic of addiction uh, which is the addiction to escape from the world and escape from your natural state and artificially with chemicals induce a state of joy pleasure escape whatever now with without drugs these uh, these uh, neural networks these deep learning and with these interventions especially uh, chip uh, with the uh, uh, semiconductors planted in or some kind of a quantum device planted in uh, and artificially managed from somewhere else by an algorithm this gives you a kind of an addiction addictive society and i've coined the term in this in this book moronization of the masses the masses turned into zombies masses turned into morons which i hope will not happen but i'm talking about this as a phenomenon that as machines get more intelligent there's more concentration of power somebody a, a zuckerberg sitting and pulling strings between him and me is this huge algorithm this huge giant machinery 
a yantra. A yantra is being controlled by somebody, and and uh, millions and billions of people are uh, you know at the mercy of this yantra. So this is the this is the dystopian view uh, of the uh, very positive AI view, which is the utopian view. But this is the opposite dystopian view. And you are right; it remains to be seen which way it turns out. And it's up to us as human beings to not let that view take over. Uh, and so I see that there is a, a a term I use in this book is called is a algorithm versus being. Being is the spiritual. Algorithm is this AI, and there is this: am I am I being, and therefore I'm achieving joy and anand through as being, or am I algorithm being programmed and trained to feel pleasure? I think that's the big clash of civilizations that probably going to happen, and we are both on the same side, wishing one particular way forward. But it's it will require some intervention by important people like you. important people like you to think about this and intervene and move things in a certain direction and that's why i wrote this book so the market people do not have any ideology right. when they had to beat up ibm to bet on microsoft they did it without you know batting an eyelid so the markets are not a good indicator of what is to come they are a good indicator of what is the like who is the smartest company today that smartest company can go down tomorrow i mean we have had n number of companies in us just go down in a scandal or whatever etc they just forget and the market forgets them in a few days so we firstly i would not go too much by what the market is saying that just only today's story and they tomorrow they have no problem changing you know from 500 points down to 500 points up and the market men will give you a very convincing story about both of them so <laughs> and uh, though i belong to that profession but i also know this reality the second part is i do believe that forces and counter forces both exist in the universe the real winner always is atapi sampajano satima the one who is alert indian culture is the is the most resilient culture despite all the possible attacks that the world could imagine happened to india and the culture lasted so there is a counter force japan has lasted there is a counter force though it is it was the second richest country until 20 years ago it did not allow a lot of other cultures to seep in i mean the corona story is an amazing story in japan the japanese government does not have the legal authority to create you know order a lockdown they didn't need because the people they respected each other they trusted each other and they have had the most amazing record in facing they had density they had old people they had all the problems that italy had but the incidence of the disease is a fraction of what it was in italy so i think culture can be a huge huge resistance to all these other things that we say and nature only can create i and you cannot create really a mass culture so i think there are forces that are at play it is our job anyone who understand this it becomes his swadharma so yes. i think it is your swadharma it is yes. my swadharma Absolutely. that we talk about it we do what we can yes and while you know unless we begin with the dystopian view you will not be galvanized into action yes so i salute you for you know raising the alarm creating those you know stating those five battlegrounds catching hold of people and telling them and saying that you know you got to do something 
not because the world will necessarily go bad, but it's a real risk and we must fight with all our might to resist it. This is so nice of you, Vansali uh, ji. I'm so indebted to you. Uh, I, I'm always very grateful to you when we have a chance to speak. I, I learn a lot, uh, both in our private conversations we've had and also for the benefit of the viewers. Uh, I, I, I thank you very much. Uh, and uh, uh, namaste to all my viewers and namaste to, to Vansali ji. Thank you very much, Dr. Sab. Always such a great pleasure and honor to speak to you.